The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 16th chapter. Jesus said, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so. And no one can cross from there to us. He said, then father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. This toy, this toy, while it is wreaking havoc on all of our lives at home, you press a bubble on one side and it pops through to the other side, making this fun little sound, right? Reminds me of bubble wrap. I used to love popping bubble wrap as a kid, right? And I remember popping and popping and popping bubble wrap at my grandmother's house because she would store it up for us because she knew how much we grandchildren loved it. My mother would be like, get it out of the house. We're not keeping that around, right? But my grandmother would have like an entire closet filled with bubble wrap when we grandchildren came over. And we would pop and pop away, but eventually it would run out, right? There's only so many. Not so with this toy. It's limitless, right? Limitless popping. But here's the rub. We got this as a gift from my sister-in-law, and we only got one. <laughs> Which you would think one would be enough when you consider it's unlimited, right? Unlimited popping. One should be enough. But I'm guessing you know where I'm going with this, right? <laughs> 
currently, this toy has caused my children to behave now in those ways that all parents dread their children will behave, right? So sorry, and Diana, sorry, Henry and Diana, this is your first bad illustration in a sermon. There will be many more to come, I'm sure. <laughs> Diana, however, adorably, will hold this out to her brother, just so, and she'll smile at him, this wonderfully sweet smile, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, she's so kind, she's going to give him a turn. But of course, as soon as he approaches, she grabs it and puts it as far as she can away with her other arm from him, right? Now, lest you feel too badly for Henry, two days ago, I witnessed her playing very quietly with this toy, contentedly to herself, and her brother came up behind her, grabbed her from the back, literally grabbed onto her ear for attraction, and pulled her head to the floor, after which he crawled over her face trying to grasp at the toy. When I yanked him off of her just at the last second, I think I prevented any serious harm from coming to Diana. Now, I held Henry in my lap for 10 seconds, his first time in timeout ever, right? 10 whole, long, gruesome, grueling seconds. And the screaming and crying that ensued from Henry, well, let me tell you, he had no remorse. Mm-mm, no, no remorse that he just pinned his sister to the ground by her ear. Instead, included in his plaintive crying was just sort of this wail that suggested that he'd been horribly wronged, horribly wronged by his mother, who had snatched him away from victory at the last second, right? It's fair to say that Henry and Diana have absolutely no sense of what it means to walk in the other's shoes. And I think it's also fair to say they don't have any desire to do so, right? And I know you would say, well, they're one. That's true. That's accurate. But the interesting thing that I've noticed about them is that it's not that they don't care for each other. They do. If one of them gets a boo-boo, the other will crawl over to offer a kiss or a hug. It's absolutely adorable. They are kind to each other. They hold each other's hands. They give hugs and they give kisses. But... When one of them has a vested interest in getting something for themselves, there is no reasoning with them. And I think this behavior is reflective of our larger human nature as well. We are good at loving others as long as it doesn't cost us anything. We are good at giving our money away as long as we don't want to keep it for something that we want. We are good at being there for our friends as long as it makes us feel better about ourselves. I think it's the human condition that we are limited by our own interests, pursuits, hopes, wants, dreams, and needs. And these things in and of themselves, they aren't bad. I don't mean to suggest that. It's not bad to have your own interests, hopes, pursuits, wants, dreams, and needs. That's part of our human nature and part of our pursuit of the beauty and all of God's good gifts that God truly wants us to enjoy and to celebrate. <clears throat> However, I think the challenge comes in for us in realizing that every single human being has their own wants, hopes, needs, joys, and desires. It's that age-old, put yourself in the other person's shoes, 
sometimes more specifically said, don't judge someone else until you've walked a mile in their shoes, right? We first learn this when we're about one year old in our very first time out ever, right? And if you're like me, this lesson gets repeated. It gets repeated in pre-K, in kindergarten, in elementary school, both lower and upper, in junior high, in high school, in college, and in the larger world of life beyond, decade after decade, year after year, day after day. Because I think this is one of the hardest spiritual practices that we are given as human beings. And therefore, as a spiritual practice, it requires practice, right? We don't come into this world knowing how to do this all that well. Henry and Diana are pretty limited in their ability to do this. I don't know how much further I've gotten in the 40 years that I have on them. But I find that in practicing, it helps. Because if I practice in one area of my life, it seems like it gets better, but then I realize I've been forgetting to practice over here in this other area, right? Like maybe I get better at doing this in my marriage and then I forget that I need to do it with my colleagues or my friends, right? Or I get better at doing this with my colleagues and my friends, understanding where they're coming from with things, only to realize I really haven't paid attention to the stranger, those that God asks us to reach out to outside our walls. Have I really thought about things from their perspective, right? And maybe I get better at doing this with strangers. Like, for instance, perhaps I start to think I understand things from an economic perspective. Maybe they have a different vantage point because of how they've been gifted versus how I've been gifted. But then I discover that my empathy is further challenged by their culture or their world understanding or their practice of religion. And I also have to confess in this that practicing this, or I really should say failing to practice it well, is also where I have made the largest mistakes in my life. Right? Mistakes that could only have been made from the myopic perspective of me, my life, my interests, my pursuits, hopes, wants, dreams, and needs. And mistakes that could really only be overcome if I was able to view things from the other side from another person's perspective, right? So wrapped up in this is that throughout my life, I feel like I've been most gifted in getting to know other people when I have spent time in other cultures, overseas and in Mexico, when I've spent time with people uh, from other cultures here in the United States, learning about their perspective, their religious background, their understanding of the world, through the lens of their lives, I feel like my life has been enhanced magnificently. And then secondly, I feel like the only true reconciliation I have found with one I have wronged or one who has wronged me required the placing of each of us in the other's shoes in order to view with a new understanding the disagreement from the perspective now of the other, right? No longer allowing my perspective to matter at all, at least for a little while, totally shutting it down so that I could understand how they might have viewed and seen a situation. Of course, I know that that only works if the other person is willing to do that 
with you. Well, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, we who live in a culture which values money and status and success very, very highly, I think we get caught, get caught up in the money aspect of this story. We get caught up in the rich man's wealth. We get hung up on his clothes. We wonder if he's wearing Prada. We get hung up on his daily feasting. Is he having dinner every night by Wolfgang Puck? We get caught up on that magnificent house guarded by that huge gate. We wonder how he acquired his wealth, and we assume it must have been from some notable achievement. And truth be told, I think most of us in reading this are a little sad. He ends up in hell. We are worried about him. We pity him. Because I think, truth be told, we're a little worried about us. Because most of us, while we don't have Prada or a Puck or fancy gates, we do have most of our worldly needs addressed. And I certainly include myself in that. I'm not begging. I'm not covered in sores. I'm not starving. And I don't only have dogs to comfort me, right? I think this story, we get hung up on the wealth. And I'm not saying that the money doesn't matter. But I think the larger point Jesus is trying to make is, did the rich man ever take the time to put himself in Lazarus's shoes? Did he ever stop when he passed by him and really think about what Lazarus's life was like? Think about what his daily experience of the world was. But because we get hung up on the money, we're surprised by this scathing story from Jesus. The tables turn so quickly, faster than we might have ever imagined. And the tables turn so completely, more completely than we might have wanted. The one on the bottom finds himself on the top, and the one on the top finds himself in the bottom. And if that pattern doesn't sound familiar to you, it soon will, because it's going to be repeated over and over again in this Gospel of Luke, which we continue to trudge through. I know you've heard the first will be last, and the last will be first. That's the great reversal Luke talks about. Our parents taught us this when we were one, but it will take us more than a lifetime to learn it. It took, it took the rich man more than a lifetime to learn it too, didn't it? And Jesus tells us this story with such a matter-of-fact nature that it causes concern. There's not a hint of sympathy in Jesus' telling. And Jesus is normally a pretty merciful guy, right? But we don't hear it here. Abraham will not show mercy to the rich man. Abraham will not even show mercy to the rich man's brothers. And so we wonder, what are we to do then? Right? Well, these are the days in which I'm glad it isn't up to us. These are the days when I am very glad that it's up to the absolute best ever walk a mile in the other person's shoes person in the history of the universe, right? Namely, Jesus the Christ. Because one of the most important doctrines of our Christian faith, doctrine being a fancy word for teachings, goes by the name of the incarnation, which is really just a fancy word for walk in the other person's shoes, right? The incarnation. Jesus walked a whole lifetime in our shoes, right? And Jesus didn't just give up Wolfgang Puck or Prada or any of those things. He gave up heaven 
in all of its glory, in all of its perfection. He gave up hanging out as part of the full and blessed Trinity. He gave up understanding life in its fullness, in its completeness, and all that it entails without the suffering and pain of our lives. He gave that all up in order that he could become like us so he would better understand our waywardness, so he would better understand who we were as human beings, so he could see things and the world from our perspective, and most importantly, so that he could cross that gaping divide, which our story talks about today. That gaping divide, it sounds very scary, but it has been crossed, we confess, in the person of Jesus. We confess that when Jesus put on his walking shoes to become human, he put them on for the express purpose of learning from our perspective that he might walk across that great chasm and heal the division between God and between humanity, right? And we see Jesus do this time and again and time and again in the Gospels. We see him reach across divides and put himself in other people's shoes and learn from their perspectives, so I have to tell you that I plan to keep on practicing no matter how many times I make a mistake because I have seen joy spill forth when I decide to take off my shoes for a while and put on someone else's. And I'm also incredibly grateful and joyful for the gift of the one who showed me how to walk. And no matter how many times I stumble and fall like Henry and Diana do right now all the time, I know that this one who is teaching me how to walk day by day will sustain me when I falter. Amen.